This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. This week is a rebroadcast of one of my favorite episodes of Insights at the Edge, and one of the episodes that has received the most positive feedback from listeners, Falling in Love with Sleep, with Dr. Ruben Nyman. Ruben Nyman is an internationally recognized leader in integrative sleep and dream medicine. He serves as the sleep specialist and clinical assistant professor of medicine at the University of Arizona's Center for Integrative Medicine, directed by Dr. Andrew Weil, with whom Dr. Nyman co-authored the Sounds True audio program, Healthy Sleep. Also with Sounds True, Dr. Nyman has released the audio program, The Yoga of Sleep, Sacred and Scientific Practices to Heal Sleeplessness. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Ruben and I spoke about the contemporary problem of hyperarousal, how it interferes with healthy sleep, and the psychological roots of hyperarousal in our society. Ruben also shared with us do's and don'ts for getting a good night's sleep, including useful bedtime rituals and the power of weaning ourselves off of an alarm clock. Finally, Ruben and I spoke about some of the deeper dimensions of sleep, including the function of dreams and what it might mean to approach our life from what he calls a united states of consciousness, where we appreciate the commonality that exists between sleeping and waking. Here's my very intriguing, helpful, and mind-opening conversation about falling in love with sleep with the man we've dubbed the sleep doctor, Dr. Ruben Nyman. I joke sometimes that Sounds True should talk about itself as a company that's helping people go to sleep as much as we're helping people wake up. And the reason is that there is such a need in our culture for people to receive help with the issues of insomnia that they face, that we've produced several programs on helping people go to sleep. And so, Ruben, to begin with, I'd love your help in understanding how insomnia and problems with sleeplessness have become such an epidemic in our culture. Yeah, I think that's a really important question to start with, um, and, and they are an epidemic, uh, I think, by, by any definition of that term. Um, you know, the, the numbers are astounding, and they seem to be growing year by year. Uh, so conservatively, we, you know, we have 60 million American adults, uh, and probably many times more around the, the rest of the world, who struggle.
struggle with insomnia, uh, at least 20 million who struggle with sleep apnea, and uh, other numbers for lesser sleep disorders. But uh, if you step back from sort of formal sleep disorders, the National Sleep Foundation in their annual polls, uh, they generally find somewhere around 60-70% of Americans reporting at least one clinical symptom of a sleep disorder at least a few nights every week. So it's so common, uh, it seems to wash away. You know, it's just not something that stands out when people chat about their night at the water cooler at work the next day. So it is an epidemic. And and I think uh, even more importantly, the the ramifications are quite profound. It's one of the situations that is so big, it's it's hard to grasp, it's hard to see. But we do need to step back far enough so that we can take a look at it, an honest look at it, and react to it. Um, you know, we know that, that chronic sleep loss is a critical factor. It increases the risk for all major disease categories. You know, we're talking about heart disease, cancers across the board, neurological disorders, autoimmune disorders like arthritis, metabolic disorders like diabetes, and, and even um, a serious emotional or mental problems. Uh, we know, for example, that uh, a year of off and on insomnia is the single strongest predictive factor for future clinical depression. So it goes on and on and on. And um, what we believe today is is what mediates this, the, the reason the loss of sleep has such a profoundly negative effect on our health is that it increases chronic inflammation. And I think most of us are now aware that chronic inflammation is, is a substrate uh, of all of these uh, um, intense uh, physical and mental problems. So, Ruben, why are we having such a difficult time getting a good night's sleep today at this time in history in the Western world? You know, I think the short answer to that is um, is that we're too we're too clingy around wakefulness. Um, if you ask uh, the average person who can't fall asleep or stay asleep at night what was going on at that point, they'll typically say to you, you know, I, I, I'm tired, I'm fatigued, I'm worn out, but I'm just, I'm just not sleepy enough. And uh, the truth is when we take a closer look at it and when we encourage a more mindful view of what's going on, it turns out that, that most people, the vast majority of people with insomnia, with sleeplessness, are not insufficiently sleepy. They're plenty sleepy, but they're too wakeful. And, and this is an issue that, that, that I think has some important spiritual ramifications as well. You know, when we look at sleep, we, we, most of us know that we define it in terms of levels or stages, right? We have stage one, light sleep, stage two, um, it's still light, but a little deeper. Three and four is deep sleep. And people get that there are different stages or levels of sleep. But I think one thing that's so obvious that we tend not to focus on is that there are different levels of waking. You know, we see waking as sort of all or none. You know, I'm awake or I'm asleep, but that's not true. And if we take even just a quick glance inside at our own experience, most of us will acknowledge, well, I can be awake to different degrees it turns out that, that most people with insomnia have something that is now called hyperarousal. And, and that's a technical term for what I would call too awake, too excessively awake. Um, now, we want to be able to sort of peek out with passion during the day. We want to reach certain heights of awareness and experience, uh, creativity and productivity. But um, we can't stay at the peak the entire time. And I think a lot of people sort of pace their psyches 
onto that high point and cling there. And then after after a while, they don't even recognize uh, that that they're sort of stuck on the ceiling of wakefulness. Uh, and even if they come down a little bit, they're still way up in the air. So the the problem is learning how to come down from excessive wakefulness. Now, I want to dig into this a little bit, because when you were talking about the levels of sleep, I totally tracked with you, and I could imagine kind of light falling asleep and then being in, you know, in a deep, dreamless state of sleep. I get that. How would you describe the different levels of wakefulness? Well, there's a common a common belief that doesn't hold water, both, I think, culture-wide and also in, in professional circles around sleep. And the belief is that sleeping and waking are essentially opposite and mutually exclusive conditions. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a serious misunderstanding. It just doesn't hold water. So somebody wakes you up in the morning, and you might say, uh, leave me alone, I'm, I'm sleeping. Well, when you're talking, you, you are to some degree awake, and the truth is you may still be to some degree asleep. So we can have degrees of sleep and wakefulness coexist. Um, I think this is important for people to get for lots of reasons. Um, I, I actually, going back a step, and I'll come to your question, I, I believe pretty strongly based on the data we have today and, and also based on, on spiritual perspective of sleep from around the world, that, that sleep is the default, meaning that, that, that other things being equal, we are all always already asleep. That sleep is a substrate in consciousness. It's in there. I think a lot of what we refer to elements of, of serenity and inner peace really are exactly the same as, as these deeply profound states of sleep, and they're inside of us. Um, you know, from a scientific perspective, it's interesting. Uh, the brain is set up to... It, it, it has an on button around the production of melatonin that, that's always on. It's set up to produce melatonin all the time. That's the default. It stops producing melatonin when we're exposed to light. So the melatonin is suppressed, but it's always geared to be going. In that sense, metaphorically, we're always geared to be asleep. So when we, when we try to understand waking consciousness, I think we need to look at it in terms of a hierarchy that goes from a fundamental deep, deep base of serenity and deep sleep that comes up to lighter and lighter stages of waking. Um, you know, data that we have on studies of, of, of long-term accomplished meditators uh, has indicated for a long time that, that human beings have the potential of cultivating awareness, what we might call wakefulness, but I think awareness is a better word, uh, in these deep states of serenity. Now, most of us can't. Most of us kind of lose consciousness, lose awareness when we go even into light sleep, although some people can retain awareness into deep sleep. So awareness is sort of separate. When we come up that ladder, if you will, from lower states uh, characterized by delta EEG, these are very sort of high amplitude, low frequency waves. The brain is deeply synchronized. We come up to lighter stages of sleep and what I would call lower stages of waking where maybe we're you know, sort of restful. Um, alpha states are a good example of that. Uh, alpha states are, are referred to both as resting wakefulness and wakeful sleep. So an alpha state is, is a point where the continuum 
uh, the continuity, I should say, between sleeping and waking becomes evident. So we can go up from there, of course, into beta states, which and there's a whole range of beta states uh, that uh, go up, I think, between, say, 12 cycles per second on upward to maybe 30 or 40. And then we can go up into gamma states. So um, people can have, uh, people can sort of locate their awareness at various points on this ladder, if you will, going up and down. They can also have a broader awareness. There are kinds of coherent or, or, or integrated consciousness, I like to think of them of, where you can have elements of very deep, serene states of sleep present with highly focused, say, high, high beta or high gamma states. Um, so consciousness, uh, we, we can train our consciousness to go up and down this ladder, if you will. We can train it to be focused on much higher states or much lower states. And, and I think an expanded consciousness is one that includes all the states at the same time. I'm really trying to understand the problem of hyperarousal. So when we're hyperaroused, what state are we in? Okay, so let me come at it from another angle. What we, we know what goes on in the body during hyperarousal. There, there is elevated EEG, so we're in high beta and sometimes low gamma states. So, so um, the bra- brain waves are high amplitude, I'm sorry, uh, uh, high frequency, low amplitude, they're buzzing. Um, the um, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, this sort of uh, uh, neurohormonal flow of energy in the body is highly activated. Uh, hyperarousal is associated with increased metabolic rate around the 24-hour circadian cycle. Uh, hyperarousal is associated with increased core body temperature. So we're basically running high and running hot. Uh, it's kind of an aerobic consciousness, if you will. And a lot of people habituate to that, um, probably more women than men in our world for some obvious reasons. But people spend so much time in it that it becomes their their, their inner standard for waking consciousness. Now, you said probably more women habituate to it than men, and for obvious reasons, but it wasn't obvious to me what those reasons were. It wasn't, okay. Well, I think we're, we're in a transition in culture today where many women are saddled with, with two complete sets of roles. Many of them are playing um, uh, previous times roles as, as, as uh, mothers and, and homemakers and so on, and simultaneously taking on roles in the workforce as professionals. And so, the, you know, there, there is data showing that women spend more time working than men. So I think they're pushing a little bit harder. And we, we see significantly more women suffering from insomnia. Now, some of that may be role-related, some of that may be hormone-related. But we know, we know more women are hyper-aroused than men. Okay, so I think I get a sense of this hyper-arousal epidemic. What are your suggestions for people to escape from hyper-arousal as they get into bed at night? Well, they, they need to start working on it before they get into bed. I, I like to say you want to hit the brakes in your car before it's actually in the garage. Uh, you want to slow down you know, as you're getting in. You know, um, I, I had an opportunity to do some work uh, around Tour de France and, um, and, and other situations where people intentionally go very fast. Um, one example is if, if you ask um, a, a race car driver what's the most important part of their car, um, from my naive perspective, I, I thought they would say uh, the motor, the engine, but they'll actually say the brakes because the more confident they are in their ability to, to slow down and stop, the, the more confident they feel about going fast. So um, 
a, a lot of folks were hyper aroused. Um, I, I think the the metaphor of a sports car is fitting for them, and and it's fine to be agile and go fast. Um, but the the stronger the engine, the faster you can go, the better the brakes you need. Uh, some people identify with with airplanes and you know high flying jets and Lear jets and so on, and and I think that's fine too. I think it's it's okay to get hyper aroused, but if you're a jet. Uh, you need a longer runway. And so this is about slowing down, uh, really getting that you need more braking time, you need more time to descend. And and I think the short answer to this is is, uh, about developing a personalized bedtime ritual. You know, being able to shift gears. First of all, recognizing the altitude or or the, uh, the speed that one is moving at, really getting that and then, then getting a sense for when they need to hit the brakes or when they need to descend. Now, this is different for different people, though I think there's some common elements. Uh, I think it's just very helpful to start moving, literally moving more slowly at night. Um, related to that, I, I routinely recommend that people dim their lights. Um, I, I've written and spoken extensively about my belief that in our world we have a darkness deficiency that we need more time in dim dim light and, and dark space. And, and there's really good evidence for this. Darkness also slows us down. If you simply dim the lights in your home at night, you'll find that you walk a little more slowly. You know, when we slow down our, our large motor movements, we, we literally will slow down our thinking. We'll start to slow down. So dimming the lights at night is really helpful. I think also um, doing some ritual in which you you shift into another element, and, and uh, uh, this is about maybe taking a, a warm bath, a jacuzzi, a shower, uh, doing some kind of ritual where there's cleansing, but there's also this, this movement, this, this this slowing into another element. It's very helpful. A third piece would be um, some kind of process around letting go of the day. Um, probably the most common way of doing this is journaling, and, and I think journaling is great. Uh, I think people can also journal verbally or orally if somebody's with a partner. It's a wonderful joint practice to slow down together and just process the day. Um, as a part of that, I, I, um, I also think it's helpful to not only look at your day uh, in terms of the sequence of events, what went on, and one's emotional or cognitive reactions. But I, I think it's helpful at this point in the day to review your day as if it was a dream. And uh, this is about um, this is about bedtime stories. I think we sleep better when we um, we can wrap the day up with a bedtime story. And, and most of what goes down as bedtime stories are metaphors that we can identify with. You know, there are different journeys that people have. But I think we can also create our own personal bedtime story by by looking back at this day as one page in in our lives. And even if the day was filled with sort of ordinary mundane tasks, to try to reposition them, reconsider, recontextualize them in the larger picture of, of the journey of our lives, I think it really helps us let go of the day if we can assign meaning to it. So that that's the intention in processing and journaling at the end of the day. One last piece is... is um, related to how we get into bed, and I think this is a very important piece. I, I really enjoy talking to people about this. I, I've asked you know, lots of people over the years um, specifically about their bedtime ritual, and um, 
the most common one, and there's actually data on this, is that uh, at bedtime people are, are typically sitting up in bed. Uh, many people are reading, some people are watching TV, and uh, some people are doing both. Um, there's kind of a clinging to the waking world, particularly with television. Um, a lot of people then resist going down. They resist sort of letting go, even though they're sleepy and their their head is bobbing. Um, often what they're trying to do there is crank up their sleepiness. Um, there's, there's a common misbelief, um, what, what I would actually consider a dysfunctional belief in our world, that a good sleeper is somebody who goes out uh, the moment uh, their head hits the pillow. They go out like a light. Uh, and, and this is actually a, a pretty common complaint, or, or I should say it's, it's, a, it's an envy that's voiced by lots of uh, partners. They'll say, you know, um, you know my, my bed partner, my partner goes out, is a great sleeper, goes out like a light when, when their head hits the pillow. Um, if you routinely fall asleep quickly like that, it's not a sign of being a good sleeper. In fact, it could be a sign of a sleep disorder because you're excessively sleepy at bedtime. But I think it's really important to wind down more slowly. So here's here's the recommended alternative. Um, first of all, um, I, I left out a piece of this, and that's that before people get into bed, the I, I think the most common practice is uh, setting the alarm clock for the next day. And uh, it's a really interesting practice and, uh, for a number of reasons. So people set their alarm clock and get into bed and then, then try to nod out. When we routinely wake up with an alarm, we're doing a couple of things. We're snipping off the tip, the tail end of our dreaming process, because we do most of our dreaming as we're awakening. And number two, if we routinely wake up with an alarm, we're snipping off the end of our sleep and we're never getting enough sleep. So um, there's a simple practice where people can get go to bed a little earlier each night and work it out so that they can wake up without an alarm. But the other piece of this, the, the critical, critical piece in setting the alarm, has to do with a question that... Uh, that I love to ask people, and that, that question is, where do you go when you go to sleep? Where do you go? And uh, some of that is is evident when the light goes out, you know, people pull the blanket up, heads on the pillow, and uh, it's evident in what people think. And most people I ask, uh, uh, most people, when I ask people to tell me what their thoughts are, most people tell me they think about the next day. They think about simple things like, what will I wear in the morning? What will I feed the kids? You know, I've got to get the car to the shop. I've got a dental appointment, this and that and the other thing. Uh, I find it really interesting because if you look at sleep as, uh, I, I would think of it as sort of an overnight spiritual getaway. If you look at it as, as sort of a little vacation you're taking, a respite, a, a spiritual respite from the day, uh, it's interesting that people spend... Um, people go into this vacation focusing on what they're going to do when they get home. So, so, so they descend into the waters of sleep um, w- without a conscious intention. Oops. Sorry about that. They descend into the waters of sleep without a conscious intention of experiencing sleep. Um, but instead they're focused on sort of the shoreline of, of the next morning's awakening. And I think this is a really critical factor uh, affecting both the depth of our sleep 
and uh, the larger relationship we have with sleep. So what I encourage people to do as part of this ritual of getting to sleep is consider, just simply consider the possibility that there's something in sleep itself that is of, of, of great mystery, of great potential value. There's something obviously in the world of dreams, but also something in the deep serenity that comes with sleep. And when, when one goes to sleep, to allow oneself to aim for that, to allow oneself to, to descend and enjoy. Um, I talk about a, a mindful approach to sleep, and, and it's a little tricky, but the metaphor here is, is keeping your mind's eye, keeping your third eye open as you're descending into sleep. Well, it's interesting listening to you, Ruben. You're really reframing the sleep process in a pretty radical way, not as something that's you know, a means to an end, which is that I wake up the next day feeling refreshed and ready to hit it again in waking consciousness, but that it's really an end in and of itself. I really appreciate your saying that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and now sleep is in one sense a means to an end, but it, it's that's the way that, that most of us, including mostly professionals, see it. Um, we see sleep as being functional. Um, and we do this with food as well today. And, and the truth is, you know, foods are functional. We talk about functional medicine. And, uh, but I, I think when I hear somebody say, you know, I'm going to have some salmon for dinner tonight because uh, I haven't had my omega-3 fatty acids this week, it's a little heartbreaking, you know. I think have salmon if you really enjoy salmon. Uh, you can know that it's going to boost your omega-3s. Sleep does some wonderful things for us. You know, it, it, it improves our immunity. It improves our stamina. It improves our memory. It improves the way, the way we look in the world. Um, it, it helps us stay healthy. It, it is really functional. But if, if those are the only reasons we go to sleep, um, we're, we're losing, I think, what is sleep's greatest gift. And, and it's, it's, uh, I think it's a gracious um, it's a gracious gift. I, I think in sleep we're, we're taken, we're taken freely with, with, with no effort uh, into a place of incredible serenity, incredible beauty, incredible healing, um, a place that I think for many of us we have such limited waking world references for that we, we frequently, we immediately forget the experience. But yeah, it's not just functional, there's something joyous. I, I'm, I'm writing a piece now about falling in love with sleep, you know, uh, there there are. Uh, I was just at a conference, and and uh, there are people who take me aside, and they will whisper things like, "You know, I love sleep," and th- they don't want the people around them to hear that because uh, it's almost like it's it's a, a deeply intimate spiritual belief that they know other people won't understand, and they're protecting it. And and some of these folks really mean it. Um, you can come to a place in your life where you appreciate sleep as much as waking, and some people maybe even more than waking. Now, I want to cycle back to one thing that you said, which is this idea that I could wake up without the alarm clock and make it in on time to work for my various appointments, etc. How long a commitment would it take? Like, how many days would I have to go to bed early such that I could start waking up, say, at 6 or 7 reliably without an alarm clock? I I think it depends. Uh, it really depends on on the amount of sleep that an individual is carrying. Um, a lot of people have been cutting their sleep short for for weeks, months, and even years. Um, it, it doesn't appear from from you know research findings that we have to pay back our entire sleep debt, but uh, I think it could be a matter of weeks. 
uh, for the average person. But it, it's really about experimentation and just allowing oneself to, to spend a little more time in bed um, and um, may, maybe just backing up that bedtime for a while. Maybe, you know, maybe adding uh, going to bed an hour earlier, noting when one is sleeping, going to bed a little earlier. And then uh, you can continue to use the alarm clock for a while. It may be after a week or two, you'll wake up five or 10 or 15 minutes before then, and then, then you've got it beat. Um, but I, I think getting rid of the alarm clock is, is an incredibly good idea. First of all, it, it doesn't set us up to, uh, it, it sets us up to go to sleep and not to the next morning's waking. But also, um, most alarm clocks today have, have uh, digital displays, and even that little bit of light um, can, can be unhealthy, in particular for women. Um, it suppresses melatonin. Um, most plug-in alarm clocks also give off a little electromagnetic field and a lot of people sleep pretty close to their bed stand, and, and uh, this thing, although it attenuates quickly, it can affect melatonin levels in your brain. So there are lots of reasons to, to lose the alarm clock. And so you suggest that it's best to sleep in total darkness. Yeah, yeah. This is something we've known for a number of years. Um, you know, light, the word light, of course, is, is a, a term that we associate with good things, you know, with, with spirituality and the divine and and um, uh, uh, being informed and so on. Um, but it, it's um, the, the metaphor loses its value at night. You know, we associate light with good things and dark with bad things, right? You know, dark is associated with, with uh, dark nights of the soul and the prince of darkness. Um, my, my hope for the redemption of the word dark um, comes from its, its newfound association with chocolate. I think I think over time we're we're going to love the word dark a whole lot more than we do, but there's evidence that that uh, sleeping even with small amounts of light on, like like night lights, can actually increase the risk for cancer. Um, being in um, uh, relatively bright lights, like like being up at night working, uh, has a dramatic. Uh, it shows a dramatic increase in risk for cancer. In fact, the World Health Organization not long ago uh, listed uh, shift work, which of course keeps people up and exposed to light at night. They listed shift work as a probable carcinogen. So uh, good to sleep in the dark, yes. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. Sounds True hosts an annual wake-up festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the Wake Up Festival, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash wake up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, in listening to you, the other observation that I'm making is you talked about our sleep debt. And I thought to myself, oh, we, we have another debt crisis here <laughs> on our hands. And yeah. I, I'm curious what you think is the psychological roots of our attachment to waking consciousness? What's really going on that 
as a culture, we're so attached to this state of hyperarousal. Yeah. I, I, can, I can share, you know, my personal opinion. I, I don't know that it's a greater truth, but I, I can just share how it looks to me. I, I think that some of it has to do with, with uh, sort of the notion of original sin, in the sense that I think many of us have grown up believing that we have to earn redemption, that we have to work really hard uh, to prove that we are good people, lovable people, uh, to achieve the success that would, you know, be reflection that that uh, the divine is blessing us. Um, many of us, I think, have learned to work too hard. Now, I'm not opposed to hard work when it's it's work that's driven by joy and creativity. But I think so many people, uh, as Winston Churchill said, most of the world's work is done by people who don't feel very well. Uh, that's a different kind of work. And, and, and I think that's part of the drive behind uh, the, the, this uh, excessive, uh, we might even call it an addiction to waking consciousness, uh, that we have to prove something. Mm-hmm. I think that's helpful. That's important. Now, Ruben, you did a fabulous job of talking about how we might hit the brakes gradually before we pull into the garage under the covers in our bed. But I'm curious, what about that person who wakes up in the middle of the night reliably, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., and goes, you know, oh, S-H-I-T, I can't believe I'm awake again. I'm not going to get a good night's sleep. What should I do? Do I stay in bed? Do I get up and, you know, do some yoga practice? Or what do I do? Yeah. That's a great question, and that's exactly what they say. Uh, it's a very, very common that people wake up and uh, respond to that awakening with an expletive. And one thing we know for sure is waking up and uh, reflexively cursing your awakening will probably not help you get back to sleep. So a couple of things. One is, um, m- more often than not, what wakes us up is not what keeps us awake. What wakes us up is not what keeps us awake. So we might have to wake up to use the restroom, and that's perfectly normal. Um, We would wake up, we would be partially awake, and then we'd go back to bed and and go back to sleep. Uh, We might wake up because we we have some indigestion. We might wake up in response to a hot flash. Um, We might wake up as actually, uh, as, as as a natural phenomenon, there, there is some evidence uh, from some historical uh, data that people prior to the Industrial Revolution would routinely awaken every night for an hour or two with something called night watch, and um, it, it, it was actually a sacred time. So there are lots of reasons people wake up. But So going back to that point of awakening, um, I think it's really critical to begin with forgiving nighttime wakefulness. And this is actually true if we're having trouble falling asleep or waking up. Um, too often we, we go to war with that. Um, we go to battle with it. And, and of course, that's a kind of a typical posture in our world toward any kind of problem is we, we, we fight it. You know, we fight illness, we battle symptoms and so on. But what what's needed at night is just an open-hearted receptiveness. If we awaken... Um, it's really okay. They're, they're, you know, w- waking up in the middle of the night is most of the time a normal reaction. 
It's our response, our appraisal, our reaction to the reaction that tends to keep us awake. And that example, the example of hurling an expletive at it is very common. So I think if people can, if they awaken just to be with that, to be mindful of it, you know, to notice the stillness, maybe to notice what's going on in their bodies and in their thoughts. Uh, and if they can do that from a place of, of um, acceptance and peace, more often than not, I think they'll drift back to sleep. When people um, awaken and um, they find that, that uh, they're experiencing what I call cognitive popcorn, where the, the mind is just popping all of these thoughts left and right, in, in moments like that, when, when there's some agitation in the background, and that does happen, it's really helpful to get out of bed. Um, you, you don't want your bed filling up with, with, with popcorn. Uh, you don't want it, you don't want the bed becoming associated with or classically conditioned for wakefulness, and so we recommend. And this is a standard conventional sleep medicine recommendation: very gently, without beating oneself up, getting out of bed, uh, sitting down somewhere away from the bed. And, and my suggestion is that people uh, sit quietly in meditation or prayer, uh, with the lights off or dim. Keeping keeping night there, and wait for uh, what I call the single bob rule, and you wait for your head to bob. When your head bobs, it means you're starting to fall back asleep. You go back to bed. Um, in cases where there's a lot of agitation, uh, sometimes people are in and out of their bed quite a bit. But reducing the number of minutes one spends awake in bed. Uh, night after night will actually increase the propensity to sleep when one wakes up in the middle of the night. So you, you want to take your wakefulness gently out of bed uh, and then go back to bed when, when, when you're starting to feel sleepy. And what about this idea of how many hours I need to sleep in order to be healthy? Meaning I've heard some people say, you know, I can only sleep a couple hours a night and I'm fine because I meditate and do spiritual practice and I don't really need very much sleep. And, you know, other people who say, you know, if I don't get eight or nine hours, I'm a zombie the next day. And, you know, I think part of the reason people have that expletive when they wake up in the middle of the night is this idea that if I don't get X number of hours of sleep, I'm going to be a mess the next day. And is that a myth or do, do, is it different for different people? What, what's going on? Well, it, it is different for different people. Um, there are uh, probably a very, very small, tiny percentage of people who are true short sleepers and can get by with very little sleep, but they're far and few between. Um, there, there are also lots of people who need uh, at least 9 or 10 hours uh, or some even 11 hours a night. It's considered normal. Einstein, uh, I understand, routinely slept 10 hours a night. Um, the most common question I'm asked when I, I speak in different places is how many hours of sleep should I get? And it, it's a little bit like asking uh, how many calories should I eat? And of course, you would say, "Well, it depends." You know, um, you know, how old are you? How much exercise do you get? You know, what's your weight? Are you pregnant? Uh, it really depends on circumstances. And the best measure of whether or not one is getting sufficient sleep is looking at how one's energy uh, flows the next day, and and keeping in mind that that you know there's a normal ebb and flow of energy. You know, we're, we're not machines. We don't hum steadily through the day. And it's, it's absolutely normal for energy to dip in the middle of the afternoon. It actually has little dips through the day with alternating rhythms, but we get a bigger dip in the middle of our waking day because we're all programmed 
uh, to take naps, whether, whether we uh, override that or not. So energy ebbs and flows. But um, if you can get through without relying heavily on stimulants or, or uh, you know, high glycemic foods, you know, supercharged, uh, what I call counterfeit energies, then you're probably getting enough sleep. Um, the concern about uh, a difficult next day is a common one, and, it, and it's one that contributes to a difficult next day. If people wake up and they're anxious about what the wakefulness is going to do the next day, they're going to have more trouble falling asleep, and, of course, it's going to spin round and round. The the deeper truth, and I think uh, one worth repeating, is that, you know, we we are just remarkably resilient beings, you know, we're just resilient, and we're, we're, you know, we've got good bumpers. We can take a bad night or two. Uh, I think we need to be careful about, you know, what we do that day. If we, you know, if you know somebody's up the entire night, for example, uh, energy will ebb and flow. You, you, you won't just, you know, be, be uh, keeling over into sleep the next day. But we're made to take that, and I think when people remember that, they can deal with a bad night, and they, it also helps minimize the anxiety about having a bad night. Mm-hmm. Now, it's very interesting to me that you said that some of us actually do need 9, 10, or even 11 hours of sleep, and the fact that you put Einstein in that list of people who benefited from 10-ish hours of sleep, because I think there's this idea sometimes that if you need 9, 10, 11 hours of sleep, that something's kind of wrong with you. Like, you know, are you lazy? Are you sick? Like, what's wrong with you that you need that much sleep? Yeah, I think that's really common. And, and in fact, when, when I hear about what we call long sleepers, people who are sleeping 9, 10, 11 hours, I, I, I secretly think, you know, they're blessed. You know, they're, they're really blessed. Now, Ruben, I want to ask you a personal question, which is in listening to you and hearing you describe an article you're writing, Falling in Love with Sleep, I would describe you as, you know, the man who loves sleep loves the phenomenon of sleep, loves the benefits of sleep. How did this happen in your life that you fell in love with sleep? I'm not sure how to answer that. I, and I don't, I don't think, honestly, that it's that unusual. I think there, there are lots of people around. Maybe I'm just one of the few who's willing to admit it because uh, it, it can get, it can get uh, you know, the, those 60 million insomniacs a little frustrated with you when they hear that. Uh, I, I do love sleep, and, and I can say uh, I take naps when I can. Um, and there, there's just, uh, uh, when I crawl into bed at night or when, when I get on the couch to take a nap, uh, I sometimes will just giggle to myself. There's just something, um, there's something beautiful about keeping sleep close at hand. This is something I first saw with with um, with a dog with with my dog who's been gone for a while. But years ago, I used to watch him, and you know, we we would we'd romp and play, and I'd throw things, and um, you know, we, we'd be doing things, we'd be active, and if I stopped, uh, you know, to talk to somebody or get on the phone, or something, he within ten seconds he would just be right asleep. You know, it's like it's it's like he had uh, he had something right at his side. I, I think animals do that; they keep sleep close at hand. Uh, it, it's, it's just there. It's like if you're not doing anything, oh, that's fine. Don't worry about me. I'll take a nap. Um, so I, I, I've I've learned a bit from dogs and, and a little bit from cats about that uh, to keep sleep close at hand. And and you know we were talking earlier about consciousness, and I think when we do that, we, we have it's sort of like carrying a secret with you. You, you carry. Um, 
I don't know, I think about people who smoke tobacco, for example, and, and um, I used to work with smokers, and they would say, you know, cigarettes are my friend. And they love the fact that, that, you know, they could keep a pack in their pocket and they'd have it accessible right there. I sort of feel that way with sleep, you know. It's a friend that you can carry with you. It, it's, it's a source of joy and peace that you can carry at your side. And I think it's there for everybody. It, it doesn't requ- really require any practice. Uh, in, in order to get good sleep, there's just more stuff you have to let go of. There's nothing you have to acquire. It doesn't require fancy equipment. Um, you can do it in many places. I mean, you, can, you can learn to sleep in even some very odd positions. So um, I don't know. I, I just I, I think that the more uh, I learn about sleep, and, and, and honestly, I, I've learned... I think the most important things about sleep, not from books, but, well, some, some from, from ancient spiritual writings, but, but I think mostly from listening to other people talk about their sleep. Um, it's something we tend not to do, you know, because we presume that, that, that sleep is unconsciousness and inaccessible from consciousness. Uh, we, we, you know, the, the notion of falling in love with sleep seems, seems foreign to people. But I don't know. I, I think it's such an obvious thing. It's, it's such an incredible gift uh, to all of us, you know, that the world of sleep is available. It's ready and available to everybody. Now, Ruben, there are many, many things that I'm considering talking to you about in the little bit of time we have left. But I want to make sure that we talk about what you find the deepest level of interest for you in sleep and the world of sleep. So I want to go right to that, and I don't want to guess, but I want you to tell me, what right. what aspect of sleep do you currently find the most intriguing and interesting and important to you? Yeah, well, I'd say two two things equally, and and one is dreaming. Um, and uh, I, I've I've been interested in dreaming for thirty years, and it, it's what led me into a deeper interest in sleep. But you know, they're they're two separate. Um, really distinct and disparate views of dreaming. And one is is the study of dreams, the psychological or psychospiritual study of the dream, you know, its meaning, its interpretation, and so on. And the other is uh, the more, more neurocognitive, physiological study of REM sleep. And uh, I've been interested in both. And, and over the years, uh, it's been a great challenge and, and, and kind of fun work, uh, trying to triangulate the two. What, what is this thing, what does the dream look like? Um, you know, from a bifocal view, looking at it both through the eyes of, of, you know, neurophysiology and psychology. And so dreaming, and then of the subjective experience of it, of course, I think dreaming is just fascinating. Um, in short, what I believe today is that, that dreaming and waking are actually the same, that uh, waking is dream consciousness that has been contained and framed and channeled and sort of grounded by the body, by somatic experience. Uh, it, it, it's shaped by sensory experience and motor output. So, so the, dream is, the dream gets channeled through the body and it becomes waking. When the dream is no longer confined or constrained or framed within sensory experience within the body, um, it, it, it's what we experience at night. It becomes expansive and ephemeral and mystical. But um, So I think we can learn so much about consciousness by, by descent into the dream. And, and dreaming is part of sleeping. Uh, you know, dreaming, I believe we dream all the time, but dreaming becomes most evident, most visible through the windows 
of REM sleep. I think of REM sleep as being these windows that cycle through the night. They get larger and larger. They're picture windows through which we can you know, most clearly see the dream. So that's a big part of it. Um, uh, the, the, the dream, I think, is, is a constant reminder that, to me that, that uh, the world is so much bigger uh, than, than, than the, what appears, you know, there, there's, there's a resonance behind all things. And, and bringing um, dream, uh, a dream consciousness, what, what I think of as sort of a macrospective uh, posture towards waking life, uh, I find uh, is, is uh, both enjoyable and it's, it's a great relief. And there's a lot of detail behind that I'm sure we can't go into now. You're saying something very wild here, and I want to see that I'm following you. You're saying when you say waking and dreaming are, quote-unquote, the same, you mean that there's sort of a range of experiences that are available to us that express itself differently when we're asleep than when we're awake? I'm not sure I fully understand you. Another piece I'm writing now is called The United States of Consciousness. Uh And I think in our world, for for, certain cultural and psychological reasons, we segregate consciousness. So one example we talked about earlier was we, we look at sleep and waking as being opposite, mutually exclusive conditions. And they're not. Uh, we look at dreaming and waking as being opposite, mutually exclusive conditions. I think we, we've installed these artificial boundaries between waking and sleeping and, and sleeping and dreaming and waking and dreaming. And uh, if we begin looking at those boundaries, we, we, we can actually make them, we can restore them to their original permeability. And we see a continuity of consciousness, a way of being aware uh, we're, in which there are elements of wakefulness and sleep uh, and dreaming simultaneously, sort of a, a whole being consciousness, if you will. Um, so, so, you know, the Jungians have talked for years about the waking dream. And um, when, when, when you look at the night dream, uh, the night dream has certain qualities, a certain way of, of seeing. <clears throat> Excuse me, for example... Um, when we dream, um, pretty much everything that shows up in the dream is deemed meaningful. If you dream about something that you know, just something ordinary uh, that that you wouldn't think twice about in waking life, when when you wake up from it, you go, "Oh my God, I dreamt about I dreamt about a cat. What does that mean?" You know, or I dreamt about a cloud, or a feather, or or a tree, or a person. Um, think things that. We, we deem relatively meaningless or, or not important waking life. So there's something about dream consciousness that, that just presumes meaning in all things. So that's one example. We, we can carry that way of seeing into waking life, and then we have an element of the dream of dream consciousness present in waking. And, and, and frankly, I think, I think creative people do this intuitively, they, they, they've learned to see through dreamy or dreaming eyes into the waking world, and, and they, they see beyond uh, what most of us would see with ordinary eyes. Does that make sense? It does, and I think the United States of Consciousness is a very helpful phrase that clues me into what you're saying here. Now, was there a second thing that you wanted to say about the sort of deeper waters of... Yeah, about sleep? Yeah. I, I think I've hinted at it before. Um, I, I think it's serenity. Um, I, I found years ago, I, I was at one point going through a sort of a crisis time in my own life. I was going through the end of a relationship and, and my days, you know, were filled with, with, with angst and neurosis and, you know, fear. 
you know, grief and all that. And um, at that time, I, I, I um, it was so notable. I, I would wake up feeling really good um, un- until until the second I remembered my name. And then it's it's kachunk. It's it was as if my 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 personality was downloaded in a flash, and then I'd start feeling crappy again. But what I learned then, I began exploring this, was that that uh, sleep took me, sleep dipped me into this this beautiful uh, the, the waters of healing, the space of serenity. And um, you know, typically when we wake up, we kind of reconstruct the waking self even before we become conscious. Some of it's conscious when we we wake, and many people before they open their eyes will will think about what day is it, and they'll go, "Oh, it's Wednesday or it's Saturday." And 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 you know, when I am, where where I'm positioned in time has an impact. You know, most people, for example, have a different sense of self on on a Saturday than they do on a Monday. Um, and and then also in that awakening process, there's an orientation to place, and this people this is something people will experience if they're traveling. You know, so you know you wake up and and you get even before you open your eyes, you're not in your own bed, and you get oriented to where you are. So when is it? You know, where where am I? When am I? And then one the one that comes even before that that I think we can cultivate awareness of is that we we can actually come to if you will, we, we can awaken before we remember our names, before we download our waking world personality. And that's the part of us that, that, that's just emerging from the waters of sleep. You know, we're still wet with this beautiful, warm serenity. And I think to do that uh, can allow us to carry some of this incredible peace and, and healing from the world of sleep and the world of dreaming back into the world of waking. It, it always reminds me of that, that um, wonderful Rumi poem, Don't Go Back to Sleep. Uh, the breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you, don't go back to sleep. He talks about the door being round and open, don't go back to sleep. So th- this, this, you know, w- w- we can create a permeability and openness. We can keep the door open between that night consciousness world and the day world. And I think when we do, we carry into waking, we, we carry both serenity from sleep and we carry mystery and expansiveness from the dream. One final question, Ruben. I'm often asked this a lot by people who are deeply into spiritual practice, and they want to know if certain spiritual teachers are able to maintain a sense of awareness 24-7. So even in, in the deepest states of sleep, there's still some quality that they could call awareness that is there in this United States of Consciousness. And I'm curious yeah. what your view and experience is of that. Well, my, my personal experience is, is, I think, somewhat limited. It, it is something I've worked on, on cultivating, uh, carrying, sort of keeping third eye open into sleep. And, and, and I have to caution people. When I first started doing this, it actually disrupted my sleep, you know. And I think it was because I was keeping more of the, the scientific observer in me awake and carrying it into sleep. And that's not the part of us that can, can really uh, help us there. Um, you know, there, there, there are writings uh, by, by a number of spiritual teachers. The two that, that I'm most familiar with are uh, Sri Aurobindo and Mother, uh, you know, the, the woman with him, and uh, Rudolf Steiner. Uh, and they, they uh, in their works, uh, there's reference to awareness and sleep. And Sri Aurobindo, and Mother in particular, uh, wrote about um, retaining constant awareness, 
you know, um, through waking and through sleep. And I, I think she she was someone who uh, officially, you know, technically slept very little, maybe two, three hours a night. But she she would she did write and she would talk about how um, she she wouldn't lose consciousness, and there wasn't the need to lose consciousness. Uh, in I think when consciousness is, is that soft, you know, is that that loving and compassionate, it doesn't interfere. With with the serenity, with the deep rest that comes in sleep, so she, she could be she could be present with it, you know, uh, without reacting to it, which I think many of us would. Uh, but yes, there there is evidence, and I'm sure there's a lot more evidence. You know, the, the, the Dalai Lama once said, "Sleep is the best meditation," and um, you know, the, the Tibetan Buddhists have this uh, elaborate uh, set of sleep and dream yogas. I understand very challenging yogas, and in, in which. Uh, Students are encouraged to, to cultivate mindfulness, both of dreaming and sleeping. And, and I should add that, that I think in contrast to how uh, we look at it in the Western world, the, the, these students are encouraged not to meddle with their dreams. Well, when we think of lucid dreaming, we think of like taking waking world control and power and importing it into the night, you know? Um, but, but they're encouraged not to do that. They're encouraged just to be there and to witness and, and not to alter it. But I, I do think it's a distinct possibility. Ruben, thank you so much for speaking with us. I've been having a wonderful conversation here with Dr. Ruben Nyman, who will be the host of a three-part live online video series with Sounds True called Ask the Sleep Doctor. Beginning on November 2nd, you'll have your chance to ask questions to Dr. Ruben Nyman, who we've dubbed the Sleep Doctor, and learn essential practices for healthy sleep and dreaming. Dr. Ruben Nyman has also published with Sounds True a program along with Dr. Andrew Weil called Healthy Sleep, Proven Practices for Optimum Sleep and also a two-session program called The Yoga of Sleep, Sacred and Scientific Practices to Heal Sleeplessness. Well, you're certainly in a profession where we need you, Dr. Nyman, so thank you. It's been a great pleasure, Tammy. Thank you so much. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. <laughs>